Welcome into the Musketeer Report podcast. Paul Fritschner, Rick Roaring with you. Today is December 18th. Xavier right now sits at 6-5 and five overall in the season. They are 41st on Ken Palm. Not a ton since the last time we talked, Rick. Xavier beat Winthrop the other night, 75-59. to 59. One of the best overall games of the season for Desmond Claude. Had a really nice night, 15 points for Desmond. 6-9 for nine from inside the arc. Did hit a 3, had 7 rebounds, 6 assists, a couple blocks. Only one turnover. Quincy Oliveri continued his tear. 22 points for him against the Eagles. A nice night. Nice way to close it out, especially once that game got close. Got down to a one-point game, but Xavier responded with a run. Uh, pretty good defensive effort to to hold Winthrop to just 59 points, uh, especially down the stretch. But Xavier closed well in that game. Um, now we look forward toward conference play. We'll get into all of that, but there's your quick reset uh, just on where we are here over the last week. Yeah, and Paul, I think because there hasn't been a lot of action, just that one Winthrop game, uh, an expected win against a bye team, that you know maybe that we could start off a little bit differently this week. We'll definitely talk about that, and we're going to recap the non-conference slate, get into the Big East preview. But first of all, I wanted to start off with talking about something that you and uh, Adam did with your guy Sean Miller podcast this past week, where you released the Jerome Hunter episode. Uh, you guys sat down with him and Coach, and you got the full story on what happened, what the process has been like since then, all of the conversations with his family, the doctors, everything that went on. You guys recapped it well. It's a really good list, and I encourage everyone to go check that out right now. The Sean Miller podcast episode with Jerome Hunter. It's episode number nine. Um, but I just wanted to touch on that a little bit with you first because I thought uh, just a few takeaways from my perspective was, one, the fact that they did reaffirm that he will be back next season. The plan is for him to start practicing with the team the second semester here, really get into those workouts the spring and summer, try to get back on track to where he was this past offseason. And, and they talked about how good he was looking and how much he had worked on his shot and how his offense was really coming along this offseason prior to his issues with his heart. And uh, they hope he can get back to their next offseason. And then he'll be back with the team for the 2024-25 season starting next year. At least that's the plan right now. I thought that was probably the biggest takeaway for me because – We've said it multiple times. Sean Miller has said it multiple times. Like even on his coach's show, he's mentioned that that's the plan. But I think some fans have still been sort of uncertain about what's going on there. So uh, that note was good. And then I thought the other thing was really just the 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 way you guys drove home the fact that for everyone it's entertainment and it's so easy to fire off a tweet or a comment after a game at these guys and be frustrated because they didn't perform like the robots that their ESPN stat profile says they should. Um, and it was just a good reminder, in my opinion, of like all the different things that are going on in these guys' lives and and how complicated it can get when there's a whole lot of other stuff going on aside from just basketball. Yeah, that's right. And I, I appreciate and applaud Jerome for being so open and honest with this interview. In full transparency, uh, we talked a little bit before the interview and kind of got some background on what we were going to ask. Obviously, wanted to be as prepared as possible. But w that was the first time that even Adam and I had heard the full story. So as we're sitting there, you know, I, I was trying to keep my mouth from dropping the whole time as Jerome kept talking more and more about what was happening in late June and how serious the situation was developing. It, it just how quickly, rather, it was developing and how serious it was back then. And, um, you know, what they've done since, the, the work he's done to get to this point, 
um, hopefully being fully cleared and being able to put this behind him and not having to worry about it down the line, all of those things. And you know, I, I mentioned this on Twitter a couple of weeks ago, but to Connor Barnes, the athletic trainer, to Jerome's brother who made the call to his mom to point it out, to uh, associate head coach Adam Cohen, to all the boxes that got checked along the way. I thought Sean pointed that out very well, that everybody handled everything with this situation exactly as it should all the protocols were met and to that point it, it pretty clearly saved Jerome's life and and who knows what would have happened if Jerome had kept practicing how long he would have still been able to practice feeling sick like that but you know Jerome sat down he said I want to I want to share this story there might be somebody out there that is going through the same thing or maybe isn't feeling so good wondering should I get checked and I I really applaud him for wanting to share that story and spread that message and say, hey, if there are other people out there struggling with the same thing, I want to be a voice for them. I want to be proactive with this. I want to make sure that people understand how serious the situation is, but also what we can overcome. And something he, he talked about, too, was basically at one point being told in that initial doctor conversation that there was an initial conversation that he was never going to play again that that was going to be it, that his basketball career was over. And to go through further testing and to do all the work that's been required of him to get back to this point, I think it's very cool uh, to see where he is. And like Adam said on the show, how humanizing this is to see a peek behind the scenes and um, just to really understand everything that these guys are going through, and in particular, Jerome, and also to show that he's working hard on being available for the team next year. Very funny moment when Sean pointed out that yes, he was welcome back to practice, but only for about six minutes, <laughs> not, not for a full two and a half hours. I mean, we're there at practice every day. We're seeing him. They come out, they do their initial layup lines or they do their ball handling or a, a quick conditioning drill for the first 10 to 15 minutes of practice. That's about it. And then sometimes Jerome leaves or maybe he sticks around for the full practice, whatever it is. It's not like he's out there running the whole two and a half hours, running the offense, playing with the scout team. That's not the picture of what's happening with Jerome. He was cleared to initiate coming back to practice, but being fully cleared to go into contact and everything else, those are still things that he's working on now down along the road. So I would encourage everybody to go listen. Um, I Again, I just to kind of wrap that up, I can't thank Jerome enough. Adam and I can't thank Jerome enough for being willing to talk about it and for another step to talking as much as he did, because it's one thing to sit down and agree to it and maybe share a few thoughts, but he, he really came to us and said, I want to talk about this story. I think this is an important part of what's happened to me. And now is, is all the more endearing to Xavier fans. And I, I can't imagine the, uh, standing ovation he's going to get on opening night next year, assuming everything goes well, he comes back and he's able to play next year. You know, you, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but you look at the roster for next year and the way that it stacks up, and you'd, you'd like to think that it's probably going to be one of the better rosters in recent memory for Xavier between Jerome likely coming back, Zach Fremantle likely coming back, assuming he checks all the boxes he needs to. You're only losing Quincy Oliveri, which right now he's the best player on the team, most impactful player on this team. But you knew going into the year he wasn't going to be there next year. You re replace him with 
you know, some shooting and some scoring in the in the transfer portal. Probably bring Des Claude back for another year before potentially looking for an NBA type Colby transition. Um, you have Davion McKnight, a point guard back. I mean, there are a lot of of natural progress. I think a lot of what I just said would you might be sitting there listening to this thinking, Paul, you're asking a lot. Well, on one hand, yeah, you're asking for a lot from a lot of different pieces, but at the same time, it feels like it's natural progressions that all of these players will take under this coaching staff, which is so renowned for its development. And Drome's a massive part of that. He talked about his leadership. He talked about what he's been able to do now being around the guys. And, and the last thing I'll say is I thought it was interesting when he pointed out that, you know, I asked him about leadership and he said, well, it's one thing for me to be able to talk, but it's another thing when I can't actually be out there going to war with these guys every day. It, 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 you get a you get a certain amount of respect when you're in the trenches, when you're out there in the games and battling. But now that he's back at practice and he can show off some of that skill and ability to the players that didn't play with him, it allows for a, a different leadership style from Jerome and, and one that this team certainly could use. Yeah, I, I just think that it's so it's such a good point by him because there is a big difference between being the the guy sitting on the bench who some of these young players, I mean, most of these guys, we've talked about it, it's 10 new faces, right? So Desmond Claude and Cam Kraft are the only ones who have seen Jerome in action, who saw what Jerome did last season and have the appreciation for how much of a leader he was down the stretch on that team last year. To these other guys, he's just kind of the old guy sitting off to the side <laughs> that hasn't practiced with them yet, right? That like you just lose a certain level of credibility, even if you're still a part of the team. But when you're out there each day in practice and you can say, hey, like Lazar, this is what he's talking about. This is what coach is trying to get you to do. You got to position yourself lower. So you make sure you make contact on that screen or something like that. It's way easier to be out there on the floor, show him the right way to do it. And then be like, see, this is what he's talking about right here. This is how you got to do it. It's just, it's way easier to, to get buy-in from your teammates and, and share insights like that with them. So I thought that was really insightful by him to understand that, Hey, when I'm actually back on the court with them, my advice and me being around the program will actually be more impactful. And he is very vocal at practice. He's counting out shot clocks. He's talking to guys in between drills. It's not like he's sitting there on the side dribbling a basketball in between his legs and being around because he has to be around. He is extremely vocal, very involved, and uh, you can tell that he, he very much wants to be a part of this team as much as he can be right now. Definitely. So very quick again, go listen to the entire podcast that you did with them because we hit on a little bit of it here, but you guys have way more detail about the whole process and everything. And honestly, just hearing Sean Miller talk to his players and hear those interactions, like you can gain a great appreciation for this program and Sean Miller as a head coach in his style. And maybe this is spoiling too much, but from a coaching perspective, I thought it was very interesting hearing Jerome talk about how Sean gave him a very defined role and what yeah. that meant to him as a player through his tumultuous career that he's had. Definitely. We'll save the rest of that conversation because that's really one of the the great parts of the podcast. So I'll, I'll save yep. that for you guys. Yep. I don't want to spoil it here. Yep. But I, I agree with you. That is one of the best conversations of the entire thing is Jerome talking about the role that Sean gave him to be able to understand and buy into and simplify things for him that really jump-started his progress last year. So go, go listen to the rest of that podcast. But the big takeaways here, Jerome had successful surgery. 
He's as healthy as he can be at this point. He's clearing all of the, the health checkpoints that he's needed to. He has been cleared to get back on the floor with the team in a very limited capacity. At this point, it's just a few minutes of practice per day at the beginning, and then usually he goes with Andy Kettler and does some workouts by himself that we don't get to see, and the team goes off and, and practices kind of the rest of the time by themselves, and maybe he'll rejoin them to watch and, and talk to the players a little bit later on. But that's kind of where things stand now. I imagine he'll start to ramp up the activity as the, the second semester goes on. Then again, spring and summer, they plan to have him back full bore, getting into his workouts, and hopefully he will be ready to tip off the 2024-25 season, full go, all cleared as a starter on this team. That's kind of the plan going forward. So uh, last words on on the Jerome Hunter segment here, Paul? No, I think I think we covered it all. I highly recommend going and listening. Uh, just a quick plug, Rick. I always am very appreciative of what you're uh, willing to do with the message board and, and allowing us to publicize it. So thank you, thank you, thank you for that. Thank you to everybody that subscribed and shared the show. Make sure you subscribe to the show. And I'm also going to give a, a, a quick plug to the Rebound Rundown. If you're not listening to that, I'm still doing it every day. Rick will be on tomorrow. I'm speaking for you, Rick. I'm assuming you're going to be on with me tomorrow, as we always do. Um, it's a daily college basketball show. It's called The Rebound Rundown. I know we have some new listeners here to this show this year. Um, I do it every day. It's about five to ten minutes every morning, just breaking down Xavier, Cincinnati, NKU, UK, and then some national stuff to the big headlines you need to know, just a college basketball primer to get you ready for your day every day, interviews, things like that. Um, but uh, I, I had some people that that saw the Sean Miller podcast on Bally's and we ran a rebound rundown commercial and I had some questions about it. And I sometimes I kind of forget that I do that every night to to promote it. So um, if you are out there, that is a shameless plug uh, for, for both of those. But I won't take more time out of your show, Rick, to talk about that. Let's get right to Winthrop. I, it, I will say so you were there on Saturday night. I it was Winthrop at 730 on a Saturday. But it turned into, I felt like it was the most, or it was the busiest night of, of my year so far with doing stuff at timeouts, what it felt like every single timeout we had something going on. There were, I heard that Jake Browning was there. Nick Haglin was there. Rose Lavelle was there. It, uh, Xavier won by 16. It was, it was quite a night and it was a great crowd. I, I, was, I don't know what I was expecting against Winthrop on a Saturday after a Bengals game, but I'm not sure it was that on Saturday. It was a very, very fun night. Um, and uh, Xavier ended up with a, a pretty good close to the game in the final 10 minutes after a rough five-minute stretch there in the second half. But it's a fun night. Is it true that uh, I think most fans, the highlight was seeing you and Rose Lavelle out on the court together and uh, you introducing her to the crowd. Is it true that when you guys were introduced that she said, oh, you're Paul Fritschner from Twitter? Is that actually how it went down? That's what I heard. <laughs> That's what I heard. Is that actually how it went down? When she, when I went up to introduce myself to her, it was at halftime. And so Nick Haglin was there too. And our idea originally was to have both of them come out, but Nick was with his daughter and he said, you know, he didn't want to force his daughter to come out and, and come, you know, be in front of everybody on the court. I totally understood that. So when I went up to Rose at halftime, I said, Hey Rose, you know, I totally understand you're here at a game. I don't want to bother you. There's no pressure but we would love to have you out as a, as big of a Xavier fan as you are and recognize you on the court. You know, a lot of those people, you know, you want to stay anonymous. You don't want to come up and get bugged by a lot of people at a game. So I totally appreciate it. If she would have said, no, I gave her the opportunity to just, just you know, step right around the court. So I go up and I say, I'm Paul Frischner. She goes, Oh, I've seen your work on Twitter. And Rick, I'm telling you, I could have just, I could have just turned around right there and said, you know what, everybody, I'll just sign the retirement papers. I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. Did, my, did you, my fiance, no, how, 
I was gonna say, did you yeah. ask her how to pronounce her name? Were you like, is it Lavelle or Love? <laughs> what, what sport what do you play? <laughs> yeah, what is that again that you do? I know uh, been a great yeah, big was... time move. So you were mentioning your fiance there. Do, does is she a Rose Lavelle fan or do they have beef now? Is she getting a little jealous about you hobnobbing with the massive queen of the queen Rose City? Lavelle? Massive Rose Lavelle fan, and I will give a shout out to Lizzie. She uh, she got some tickets that were actually in the row behind Rose uh, for the night. So when I finished my uh, when I fi- I was I, uh, real quick when I finished when I when I finished doing my stuff. Usually it's at the under eight timeout in the second half. Usually we don't have any promotions, but we did have one more at the under four. Usually what I'll do is I'll either come up to the bunker with you and Adam and. Uh, you know, be able to actually watch the last eight minutes of the game. Cause I'm always running around trying to catch as much as I can. But at the end of the game, usually the last like eight minutes, I love coming up and talking to you guys and Shelby and just kind of recapping and getting caught up on what I've missed. Well, the other night, uh, Lizzie had an open seat next to her. She was sitting in the second row right behind Xavier's bench. I'll tell you, I've never sat right behind the bench before and, you know, listen to the coaching staff and watch the interactions and everything like that. From that perspective, right behind the bench. Yeah, that's that's worth the price of admission, man. You spin it however you need to, Paul. It sounds like you were in the doghouse and you didn't made, need to make sure everything was OK at home. Oh, that's right. She's a huge fan. She's a huge fan. What can I say? Yeah, no, shout out to shout out to Rose. I know her family is uh they're massive Xavier fans. She went to Wisconsin. Um, but she goes to games a lot. And we I obviously never want to bug her with things, never want to to make her feel any pressure with doing things, but she was great. It was very funny though when I when I asked her, I said, Rose, you know, I'd I'd love to have you out and do this. Originally, I was gonna have her actually like do the t-shirt toss with me. And she said, No, I'm pretty shy. I don't want to do all that. I said, Okay, that's that's totally fine. She's like, I don't want to say anything. Well, I don't. She's wanna, not used just, to the big stages, you know. It's just a little said, bit much I for her. You, <laughs> I said, you play in front of millions, Rose, and she goes, Well, it's that's real. That's totally different. I said, You know what? All right, I get it. I said, If I throw a headset on for a broadcast, that's way different than talking to ten thousand people in an arena, and surely not playing in front of millions, and now coming out here and having a lot of eyes looking directly at you like that. But it was it was kind of funny uh, having her out there and doing that, and uh, I really appreciate it. She was great with it. And uh, yeah, it was a fun night. Xavier won and they avoided the letdown in the second half. Um, when can I can I just say right now, if I never hear if I never hear the name Trey Townsend again, like if I never have to put a little a quarter in the jar for every time we say that name, I, my life will be perfectly fine. Because for as much as we've talked about the three by games and the the strong forward that's going to give Xavier the athletic post player that's going to give Xavier some trouble if he can step out or maybe bully Xavier around the rim. I'm good with never talking about that again. <laughs> my, favorite, my favorite was the guy on the message board who wanted to recite Trey Townsend stats for me. Like, oh yeah, no, no, you're you're right. You're probably more versed in the Horizon League and, and their star players than I am. My, my fault. He's probably spent a lot more time watching these guys than I do. No, he's, he's a great player, but I'm with you, Paul. We've, we've talked a lot about Trey Townsend. <laughs> I'm good, man. I'm good. Uh, and Xavier has done a better job since then against those forwards, and they did a much better job in this Winthrop game. I thought, you know, credit to Winthrop because there was a, a moment in the second half, and again, it was like really those first four or five minutes early in the second half, I think, where Xavier had a letdown. I think they started to sub a little bit. At, talking to Sean Miller after the game, he felt like it was really a letdown by the bench when – uh, they they changed the rotation up a little bit at that point, and he needs more out of those guys. But Winthrop had the momentum, and they came back in this game, and it didn't look good there for a little stretch. And you were thinking, oh, Xavier's going to be in a dogfight. I mean, this is a team that's knocking down some shots from the outside, and 
They have some some dudes that can make plays for them. But Xavier's defense really kind of bowed its back and got better, I thought, as the game got tight there in that middle section of the second half. And, and through the final minutes, they were at their best, really, and they kind of put the game away. So I think from one perspective, you can look at that game and say it got ugly at times. It wasn't pretty on the offensive end all the time for Xavier. And, yeah, they had that bad stretch for about four or five minutes there in the second half that made it feel like Winthrop was going to get right back into the game. But then they closed it out and won by 16 points and had one of their best defensive games from a metric standpoint of the season so far. Uh, you're going to have bad moments in games. Uh, the question is, can you overcome those moments? Can you pick it up? Do you have an answer? And they didn't against Oakland. They didn't against Delaware. They couldn't find themselves after they they had that rough patch in the second half. And it became a battle to the finish that they didn't win in either case. This game, they did have the answer. They did have the answer. They did look like the better team all of a sudden, and uh, they were able to put that game away. So I thought it was, they showed progress regardless of whether it was uh, Winthrop or, or another by opponent. Individually, one note I wanted to bring up, Lazar Djokovic, I know he only played uh, or he only scored four points. He played 21 minutes. But to me, at least, it feels like he's at least showing strides he's at least showing like he's moving in the right direction I'm not talking about somebody that's going to be a massive rotational piece going forward and maybe what a lot of people thought he was going to be in the preseason but he's easing his way into this and he looks more comfortable I think he's had a really good I talked about this on the last show he's had a really good couple of weeks in practice and I'm almost wondering if it was Sean had to tear him down to build him back up again and now he's gaining that confidence I'd love to know your thoughts on it too, Rick. But to me, at least, he's he's showing flashes that he could be productive here for Xavier in the near future. I think we we started to see that a little bit. I think the biggest thing is that from a physicality standpoint and a just playing with a base, it, it looks better. He's in plays. He's mixing yes. it up. He's battling guys on the boards. There was that play in the second half where he jumped over the top of guys, ripped a rebound away went back up strong and was it an and one or he tried to dunk it and missed the dunk and got yeah. fouled, whatever um, plays like that makes me feel like he's not too far away. Like it's going to come here in, in the next few months, maybe, and maybe it'll be next week. Maybe it'll be two months from now. I'm not really sure just yet, but uh, you're starting to see some signs of it. And when I, when I say like he's playing with the base, I just think earlier in the, the season, there are too many times where you'd see him just run through the lane and like there's a rebound going up. You see Lazard take like one or two steps in the lane and someone just kind of gives him a little chuck and then he goes flying out of the play along the baseline and he's nowhere to be found. Or he's like in position to rebound, but then he wants to jump and someone gives him a bump and now he's underneath the basket along the baseline and has no chance at actually making a play there. I think there, there's not as much of that going on now. You see him in the lane battling with guys a bit more and, and that's a good sign. The way I explained it to somebody the other day is that he's not, he's a pretty well built guy. He's not huge, but he's a pretty well built guy when you stand next to him. But everybody was talking about how small he was because he's playing small. He's getting pushed around. He's not fighting back. He's not battling for a board. But now that he's starting to find his footing and be, like you said, more aggressive around the rim, maybe fighting for a rebound. Now you're starting to see some of that. And at least, look, I'm not talking about an all-league, all-freshman team, even caliber player. I'm talking about just somebody that is able to go out there and give you some quality minutes right now. And he's at least 
trending in the in the upward direction. That's just one individual note um, I wanted to talk about from the Winthrop game. Obviously, Desmond Claude, he was a Kempom MVP from Saturday night. Uh, he had a great night. And Rick, I wanted to turn it over to you about Des because I think you hit the nail on the head in your write-up about Des. He had probably his most complete game of the year. Yeah, and I think Desmond is probably taking unnecessary heat from the fan base for most of this year to start. He's really been pretty good. I mean, you talk about a guy who was a freshman last year that didn't play a big role in the team at all to now being a guy who's being asked to be the focal point of the offense a lot of times. And obviously, we're going to talk about Quincy and how he's sort of taken over that role, and it's helped. But Desmond initially was the guy to start this season, and he still is in a lot of ways. I mean, yes, Quincy has been scoring more, but Desmond's asked to do a lot more in terms of his playmaking and and getting everybody some some options because of what he can do off the dribble. So I think he's doing a good job in that role, but you've really started to see it click more over the last few games, and especially in this one. I think a large reason for that is because of Quincy Oliveri taking ownership of this team and really taking a lot of that leadership role off of Desmond. I don't think Desmond's naturally as outspoken. He's a smart kid, sharp kid, is fine talking in, in post-game press conference and all that. He's really good at that stuff, but I don't think it's natural for him to be as outspoken and be the lead lead uh, leader in the locker room type of guy. For Quincy, I think that comes very naturally for him. And with Quincy able to score like he's been scoring recently, averaging like 30 points per game over the last what, four or five games, I think it's only brought him more out of his shell and not that he was ever in one, but like we've, we're just getting even more of Quincy's full character and, and uh, personality. I think here over the last few games, especially since the crosstown shootout win. Shout out rice. Yeah, shout, shout out to Rice for his uh, for his degree. Uh, he, no, he, he, did, he did point it out that he is someone asked him. Well, I think it was you that asked him about n- not having the class load now because exams are done. He's like, yeah, well, I've been taking all classes online because I got got a good degree from Rice already. So that was a good <laughs> shout, out Rice. <laughs> yeah, shout um, out Rice. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And, and when we're talking so much about a leadership style of this team and I, you know, Des has kind of mentioned that, too, where you look at what the team was last year and the guys he was able to be behind. And look, he's only a sophomore. He was thrust into this role because of his skill, but not everybody feels like they have to be this vocal, outspoken, I'm going to take the bull by the horns. And not saying that he's not. My, My point is that, like you said, it comes more naturally to some other, but Quincy's also played a ton of college basketball games. We're not we're not talking about Quincy Oliveri coming in here as a freshman. He hits eight threes in a game, and all of a sudden he's the he's the guy on this team. We're talking about Rice's all time three point leader. We're talking about somebody that has played in a ton of big time college basketball games in his career and has been around the block and knows what this is about. Maybe not at the Big East level, but he knows what he's getting himself into, and he also very much has the personality to back that up too. Yeah, and you're exactly right, Paul. All the experiences where that comfortability comes from on the, the yeah. side of Quincy. And, and for Desmond, it's like, you know, you, you go from last year where you're not a big factor in most games. You're not a huge impact player. You've got a small role off the bench to now you're starting this year and you may score 14 points in a game and the fan base is just ripping you after the game on Twitter because the team lost and you weren't as good as they thought you should be as the best player on the team, right? Think about the pressure that even if you don't think about it that way from a player's perspective, it's human nature. I mean, look at adults. If anyone says bad, something bad about another person on our message board, 
Like these 40 to 50 year old men can't let it go. They have to respond to the guy and get to the bottom of it. And why do you think this about me? And they get all up in arms about, I mean, think about if you're a kid and all these fans are saying things about you on Twitter like that, you may not even look at it from that perspective, but it's going to affect you a little bit when you're like, wait, I thought I played pretty well. Like I'm doing a whole lot more than I was doing last year. And now the fan base is crushing me. That's part of being that number one option and being the go-to player of a team. And I just think that's probably a lot on, uh, on Desmond this early and, and he's handled it well. He's playing good basketball. It hasn't really affected him too much, but I still imagine that Quincy sort of stepping up and, and being able to provide that extra scoring has, re- and by the way, we, I've said this from the beginning of the season, Desmond Claude and Quincy Oliveira are going to be the two leading scorers on this team. And if not, the team's going to be terrible. But this was the, this team's only options is for those two guys to be really good scorers. They just don't have enough firepower aside from, from those two guys right now. So um, this was always kind of going to be, I think, the plan of attack. And fortunately for, for the Xavier team, Quincy Oliveri has really helped put that plan of attack into motion now, and, and it's starting to work a little bit better because he's given you 20-plus points a game. Xavier outscored Winthrop 27 nothing on fast break points. And if I had a dollar for every time I heard Sean Miller said pace at practice, I would be a billionaire. That's all he talks about. Pace, pace, pace. In between every drill, when they're moving from drill to drill, it's pace, 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 pace. He just wants to play fast. He wants to get out in transition um, because he wants to catch the opponent off guard, maybe pick up a foul, whatever it might be when you get to the basket. That happened on uh, on Saturday night, you could see Xavier get out. And even after made baskets, there were at least a couple of times where Xavier would come down the court, and all of a sudden, before Winthrop even knew what was happening, Xavier's right at the rim for a layup. Well, that's their bread and butter. They talk about scoring in the first eight seconds of a possession, and every time there's a made basket, you'll look. It's perfectly orchestrated. They have the inbounds pass as an outlet to the guard, and then they immediately look up the sideline to try to find the wing sprinting the floor to try to get that quick hitter, and they are very good at getting those, running it right back down your throat after a made basket opportunity. So that's a big part of what they do. And there's also, Paul, you you talked about the pace. There's like pace with the way they're running their offense in the half court which they want to have great pace there because it makes it harder to guard all the screening actions and all the motion but then there's also just the tempo they're playing with in terms of trying to fly up in transition and push the ball as much as they can whether it be after a make or a miss and and they're doing both of those things and Sean Miller even said that uh, after the game that he wants to play even faster than they're playing right now like it's not even fast enough for him so uh, I think that's just something that you're going to continue to see them get better at as the season goes along but to this point I think they've done a really good job of limiting turnovers while playing that style. And it's not an easy thing to do. It wouldn't have surprised me at all if this was a team that averaged 15 to 20 turnovers through the non-conference portion of the schedule with the style that they were playing, the level of competition that they were playing. But that wasn't the case. And I think you got to give Desmond Claude and Davion McKnight a lot of credit because they've been the two main ball handlers in that starting lineup. All right, Rick, let's look forward to the conference schedule. Xavier gets going on Wednesday night. That's at Carneseca. It's one of only a couple. Hold on one second. Hold on one second. Let's talk about the non-conference here real quick. Just a quick recap because. um, Well, yeah, I was going to do. I was going to do all that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, okay, okay. You you mean with with the records and stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just just talking about the non-conference being that. Yeah. All right. Before we get to the Big East portion, because we each had them at eight and three through the non-conference slate when we did our pre pre preseason prediction show. They're now sitting at six and five. Clearly, I don't think they played to the level of expectations. We didn't have them losing three games in a row at the Centos Center. We didn't have them losing two bye games. Where would you say you're at now um, in terms of how this team performed through the non-conference schedule based on expectations coming into the year? 
So they did exactly what we said they would do in their high major games. The difference was that they lost the two bye games that have really set this team back as far as an NCAA tournament at large berth goes for the rest of the season. They have a lot of work to do going forward. I'm not surprised that they lost one bye game. I mean, I talked about it on that on the show right after they lost to Oakland. You know, after the first couple of weeks of practice, I had gone back on Ken Palm and and done the digging to find out when the last time was that they had lost a bye game because I just had a funny feeling. I wasn't going to predict it. No, nobody in their right mind is going to predict Xavier to lose a, a bye game. I'm not going to sit here and try and do revisionist history about that. I'm I'm not. But it's not surprising to me with the way they scheduled these bye games that they dropped one with the inexperience of this team together it is shocking to me that they dropped two in the in the same exact manner that they did it back to back i mean if they had lost to jacksonville in the second game of the season because they beat robert morris they're feeling good and they're looking ahead to purdue and then they lost to winthrop coming off the high of the shootout and those are the two by losses i'm going okay well you can kind of make sense but to lose to oakland Almost beat the number one Ken Palm team in the country and then lay an absolute egg against Delaware. That was the most surprising thing to me. It was very disappointing to see that. It was um, not something at all that I was expecting going into that Delaware game. I thought they were going to win that Delaware game running away. And now you have completely set yourself back as far as an NCAA tournament berth goes and you have dug yourself into a hole that you can certainly dig yourself out of. But the other thing too, Rick, and this is maybe a transition into about, I want to hear your thoughts on the non-conference. It's just tying a bow on my thought on the non-conference is that in the non-conference portion of the schedule for the entire big East, we thought going into this year that the big East was going to have one of its most banner seasons since realignment going to like John described on the Sean Miller podcast, uh, John Fanta before the season started that this could be the most anticipated Big East season. You're talking about it like a mid 1980s Big East where you got all these powers coming back and Rick Patino's at St. John's and all. They didn't exactly have the non-conference season that the conference was hoping. And not to say that it's bad, but UConn is carrying a lot of weight of this conference. Marquette certainly had a great run out in Hawaii, but they also got blown out by Wisconsin. They looked very vulnerable the other day against St. Thomas. Uh, there have just been different head scratchers this year. Georgetown and DePaul are completely written off. And Georgetown looks as bad as they've ever been. We knew that they were going to be bad going into the year and Ed Cooley was going to have his hands full. I'm not sure I expected them to be this terrible. DePaul is maybe the worst we've ever seen. Butler looks good. Providence has looked good in flashes. But I don't think this is exactly the year going into conference season we thought it was going to be. Somehow we got into the conference preview while trying to do the non-conference review. Let me let me go back, Rick. Go ahead. What do you think of the non-conference? Go ahead. Yeah, I've got I've got thoughts on those Big East teams, Paul. I promise we will get to them. Um, All right, go ahead, Rick. Yeah, I, I just thought the point you made about the the high major games was the one that I was going to get to. Is that in in a way, they almost overachieved, in my opinion, with the way they played against Purdue and the way they played against Houston. Those games were maybe even better than I would have expected coming into the season, much less after we saw this way after we saw the way this team started the year. Uh, but 
when you factor in those by game losses, it just makes it a really disappointing non-conference slate. And the biggest part of it is now you've really kind of played yourself out of an at-large bid, it feels like, or at least a realistic opportunity at an at-large bid. Now it basically comes down to you feel like you have to win probably 13 games in the conference slate. You probably have to go 13 and seven and have 19 wins to feel really good about getting into the NCAA tournament as an at-large team. Maybe you could talk. I mean, just a team with only 18 wins that also lost two bye games at home. It's just hard to imagine that resume getting you in. So I think you have to be at, le- at at least 19 wins, and some of them are going to have to be some marquee, probably road wins in BE's play against some of the top teams for you to really put together a resume that's going to be uh, you know, good enough to get an at-large berth. So that's probably the most disappointing part of all of it. There's a lot of reasons to look at this team right now and still be optimistic and still believe – they can get this thing going and and play great basketball. Like Sean Miller keeps saying, you know, you, you're not, we're going to be a team that you don't want to play by the end of the year. And I think that might be true. At least the potential is definitely there. And there's plenty of reasons to be excited about that as a fan. The only really frustrating part is they kind of blew it with those by game losses at home this early in terms of their, their resume. What I would say about the big East is that to me, there is no invincible team in this conference besides UConn. And even UConn won the national championship last year. They're 27-1 and one in their last 28 non-conference games. And 26 of those 27 wins, if I'm not mistaken, are by double digits. They are running through teams. Oh, by the way, Xavier beat them twice last year. So when you get into the conference season, anything can happen. But just looking at the way that it's stacked up, yeah, I think of the, of the Big East, I would say UConn is far and away carrying the water of this conference right now um you know creighton lost two games to the mountain west and in both games they looked downright atrocious we got killed by colorado state got killed by unlv i don't know why they played that game in unlv and henderson i don't know what was going on there last week late night game out there but they got destroyed so yeah i think the most disappointing thing for xavier in the non-conference um is just they had the opportunities there that if they didn't lose those two bye games, if you're sitting here at eight and three, you won the shootout, you played decently against Purdue and Houston, you're feeling, to me, I would be feeling good about, hey, well, it, maybe we can at least sneak into Dayton. Right now, it's going to take a lot. Who was the most improved player through the non-conference portion of the schedule, in your opinion? Am I allowed to say Quincy after his start? I it's almost hard not to say him, but part of where we're coming from on that is like the exhibition, the blue white game. Yeah, that's really where he struggled, right? It was the the secret scrimmages from what we heard, obviously. And then the blue white game, we were concerned about him. But once it actually got into the season, he started playing pretty well almost right away. I mean, this is the player that they were expecting. It's just that he had a bad six weeks. So I don't really know if I want to say that it's, he's improved, but from a Xavier fan's perspective that hasn't seen him play before, that only was able to see what they saw in the blue-white and you know the first couple of games, Quincy's probably the answer. I, just, I think it might just be he's regaining his form more so than improved. You know, the... the, the oh, go ahead. I, the, only, the only hard part about Quincy, again, is because like, you know, that, that Robert Morris game, he had 13 and Jacksonville, he had 17, like pretty much right away to start the season. He was one of their leading scorers. So I think there were there was a lot of concern about him right before the year started with some of the reports that were coming out. But he has been pretty solid for this team, really, 
from game one on when you look at it that way. Now, he's definitely ramped it up starting with the Delaware game when he went 34 points, 27, 22, the last three. Those games have been unbelievable. But um, you got to give him a lot of credit because he's he stepped in right away and and shot the ball pretty well. Davion is probably the true answer to me, at least. I think I think Davion from where he was in the beginning to the point where we were wondering if maybe Trey Green was going to start taking those minutes to now where he's really taking control, tried to limit the turnovers. You can tell he's starting to step into his shot, especially from three. I know he only took a couple the other night, but the coaching staff really, really wants him to take more threes. And they want, more importantly than that, they want him to be comfortable taking threes. Not necessarily that they want him to go out there and start firing up five a game, but they want him, if he's open, to shoot those threes instead of, oh, I, I have to dish it. I have to find another guy because maybe I'm 0 for 3 tonight. If he's open, take it, feel comfortable in it. You're starting to see him open up more. Yeah, because he doesn't really take jump shots, like deep three-point looks, unless they're yeah. great three-point looks anyway. So you don't have to worry about Davion getting trigger happy from beyond the arc and taking too many, I don't think. The, the key is you got to worry about how teams are guarding him. And a lot of teams are going underneath screens. They're playing off of him, getting in gaps against other players. So I think that's really where that comes in of wanting him to take more open threes when he gets those opportunities and punish teams for playing those types of defensive looks against him. Um, I've got one other name, though, on the most improved side, and we've talked about this a few times. Maybe he's just not playing a big enough role yet, but I think Sasa Shani has been really impressive, too, from where he started. I know it's very inconsistent still, and he's not one of the top guys in the rotation, but I mean, quite honestly, if he wasn't playing the way he was, I'm not really sure what they would be doing at the center position because they clearly don't have any confidence in putting Kashienze in there right now for, for minutes. So it's like if you weren't getting some quality minutes at times out of Sasha, and, and when I say quality minutes, I'm talking about like the crosstown shootout game, especially he played pretty well during his minutes. But this, even some of the other high major games, Houston and, and Purdue, he gave you some moments where he was holding his own in there against really talented teams. And uh, I, I just didn't know if that would be the case when he first got to campus. Yeah. Yep. All right. You want to move into the Big East or have we covered it all already? <laughs> uh, let, let's talk about the Big East. So before the season, during our preview show, you had them at 14 and six in Big East play. You mentioned right away as soon as we got done that that might be a little bit aggressive. I think my number initially was 12 and eight that I had. And I immediately, as soon as we got done, said, nope, let me knock that down another game. I went 11 and nine as my actual number. I don't know how I get there exactly, but 11 and nine feels much better to me than 12 and eight. Now that we're here and we're going into the actual biggie schedule, Paul, how, how much have you changed or how much would you revise that prediction? Yeah. So, so when I went, when we were doing those predictions, we obviously went game by game and then we came out with that record and I realized we had 14 wins and I said, no, 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 this is not a 14 win team in the big East by any means, uh, because that means they're one game short of last year's team that finished second in the conference. And that is not what this year's team is. I think they can get to 11 wins because I think now I know Xavier has been good for a loss to DePaul, you know, one of those head scratchers or Butler at Butler last year, one of those over the last few seasons. But if you can avoid the real stinkers, the real clunkers, if you can sweep DePaul, if you can sweep Georgetown, sweep St. John's, I mean, you, Seton Hall is very sweepable. You're looking at probably six to seven wins in there somewhere. Okay. From there, you pick up 
one to two wins. Two might be a stretch, but one to two wins against the Creighton Marquette UConn group. If you can sneak one out there and then pick up two more from Villanova, Butler, Providence, that gets you to 11. I don't I don't know if I'm doing my math. Somebody's going to rewind this and say, no, Paul, you just got to 10. But you know what I'm saying? Like, if you, if you can kind of figure out that math in there somewhere and get to 11, they'll finish over 500 on the season, which for the which for the the streak of finishing a season uh, 500 or better, not finishing a, a season below 500. Xavier's one of the longest streaks in the country there. I don't know what it is, close to 40 years or something like that with that streak. So it's not for nothing that they finish at 500 or better this year. Um, and if you're talking about an NCAA tournament berth, they might say that the number next to your name doesn't matter in the terms of just counting stats of how many wins you have. But if you can figure out a way to get to, you know, that 19 win mark, 18, 19 wins, you're at least putting yourself in a position to have a chance. I don't know who says it, but you, you it might be Rostin, the in position to be in position. I forget who says it. Somebody says that. But that's kind of the way you look at it. I think, yeah, it, like we talked about, especially with the by losses at home, I think 19 is where you start talking about Xavier's at large hopes and and so that would mean that they've got to be really good here in non or in a conference play winning 13 games i find that hard to believe they will get to that many wins i think even now when i sit here and i taking an optimistic view like you were just saying and say okay maybe you can sweep georgetown maybe you can sweep DePaul, or or uh, maybe you'll steal one on the road from one of these other teams maybe you'll win a big game at home or two something like that i mean i even trying to do it that way it's still really hard for me to get above 10. And that's, and that's being an optimistic view. It's, it's really hard to get above 10 wins. Um, I think probably more like nine wins is more realistic for this team. Something like nine and 11 would probably be my new prediction. Um, I, I the, the problem with this group, and you talked about the sweepable games, it's like you could say those teams are sweepable for Xavier, but it's just as easy to say about the Xavier team, they could lose to anyone in the conference home or away this year, right? So it's like, it's yeah. hard to say any of these games feel like guaranteed wins and any of the games where they go on the road feel like they're going to be difficult wins to to grab. So uh, that's kind of where I'm at. And I just feel like if they can get to around 500, you'll feel really good about how they played in the conference. And you can look at this with a glass half empty or glass half full. But one thing Xavier has done exceptionally well this year is they have played to their competition. And maybe that means that they lose to DePaul at Cintas, and maybe that means they beat UConn at UConn. I, I, I don't know. Uh, but that's kind of where Xavier has been this year, that when the challenge has been tasked in front of them, they've they've answered the bell. I know they haven't won. I know they haven't won as far as UConn and Purdue. But that, or uh, sorry, not UConn, Houston. The Houston game was very winnable. Purdue, they were, were at least in it. So you you play like that, maybe you pick up a, a win or two that you shouldn't win. What you've done now, though, is you've left yourself absolutely no wiggle room to lose. You have to go four and zero against Georgetown and DePaul. You have to. You you can't lose. You can't lose at home to DePaul and pick up because I mean even Oakland and Delaware will probably end up at, as a quad three game. Georgetown and DePaul are quad four games. Yeah. If you're if you're talking about at large bids, you're correct. 
But I would almost take the opposite approach as a fan now of saying, you know what? Don't get too caught up in the game-to-game results. Just hope this group continues to get better, finds their best lineup, and gets hot at the right time. This is a run year. This is a year where you hope they go into the, the Big East tournament and they pull off a miracle and they, they catch fire at the right time and they go into the, the Big Ants dangerous because they won the Big East tournament, I think. It's it's hard for me to see them getting an at-large bid. And with that mindset, I think I would worry less about, oh, no, they dropped this game and now that's going to hurt their resume. Because their resume is already hurt, man. They lost the Vi games at home. It's, it's already kind of screwed up. Chances are very, very uh, large for them to, to try to make a make an at-large bid here i would just worry more about this team improving over the long haul and, and i mean we, we said 10 and 10 and, and right now i'm looking at ken palm as i look at it 10 and 10 is good enough to be fifth in the conference according to ken palm's projections you know that's that's where they have xavier right now is 10 and 10 and they have them fifth yukon marquette creighton villanova then xavier and providence both sitting at 10 and 10 tied for that fifth spot so i think when i look at the conference you know, just looking by Ken Palm rankings, you got UConn is third, Marquette is sixth, Creighton is tenth. Those are three top ten teams, and all three of them feel like they are a cut above the rest of the conference. But I will agree with you that Creighton has definitely shown to be a little bit weaker or a little bit more susceptible, vulnerable is, is maybe the right word. I think because of their guard play. Uh, and they just don't have the same level of point guard as they did a year ago with Nemhard, and that's made a difference for them. So I think they're really good still. I think they're going to be a difficult difficult on any given night, but they are maybe a little bit more beatable when they're not playing their best. Then after that, I feel like Villanova somewhere in between Creighton and where Xavier and the rest of those teams are in the middle of the pack. It feels like Villanova's in between there. They're very beatable at times, but overall, their talent is still better, and I think they're going to be more consistent than the rest of that group. But then you get into like Xavier is uh, 41st, Providence is 52nd, Butler is 58th, St. John's is 60th. All those teams ranked really closely together in there, and I think they're all very similar teams. The projections for them, 10-10 and 10 Xavier, 10-10 10 and 10 Providence, 9-11 Butler, 9-11 St. John's, and that feels dead on to me. All those teams feel very similar. I would throw Seton Hall in that same mix. They're ranked 84th. Yep. Their projection is 8-12. and 12. To me, they feel very similar to these two other teams. The only thing about Seton Hall this year is they seem to have lost some of that toughness on the defensive end that they had a season ago where they were really hard to score on. I don't know if they're going to get that back or not. If they do, maybe they're more up in that group. If they don't, then maybe they're closer to Georgetown and DePaul at the bottom. But obviously, Georgetown and DePaul are are really bringing up the rear this year. Yeah, they're bad. They're really, really, really bad. If you haven't seen anything with Georgetown and DePaul yet, yeah, they are not good uh, in the slightest. Georgetown's Xavier, sitting at 7-4, and four, so their record is a little bit deceiving there, but they've played a terrible non-conference slate. 7-4, and four, but they're ranked 177th in Ken Palm right now, which is way lower than any Big East team should ever be ranked. DePaul is sitting at 215. So, like you said, one of the worst DePaul teams ever. Xavier right now is 65th in the net. They're 0-2 in quad one. Uh, Cincinnati did drop to a quad two, uh, quad two win with the loss to Dayton the other night down at Heritage Bank. So Xavier is now 2-1 in quad two. They're 0-2 in quad three and 4-0 in quad four. Uh, so a quad three game at home is net 76 to 160. Oakland is 100 right now, and Delaware is 90. So they have some cushion there for both of those teams, even if they fall back in conference play. They do have a little cushion uh, as far as a quad three game though goes. You'd like that to stay 
as a quad three loss because you think back i mean you name brand and i mentioned this the other last week name brand wise you don't want to lose to oakland and delaware obviously buy games guarantee games whatever you want to call it but del or depaul that's a quad three loss you know last you know if you're looking at last year you're looking at how xavier's playing on the road you i mean xavier was picked up a quad three loss last year was a three seed. You know, I'm, I'm not saying this team's going to be a three seed. I'm just saying quad wise and what the committee looks at on their resume, if they could stay quad three losses, that would at least do Xavier a, a little bit of a favor that they didn't have that quad four blemish on there. Xavier only has three quad four games remaining on the schedule as it stands right now. That's home against Georgetown at DePaul and then home against DePaul Four of Xavier's first five games in conference play are quad one games at St. John's, at Villanova, home against UConn, at Providence. The one sandwiched in there is this coming Saturday, the 23rd against Seton Hall. That's a quad three game at home. Um, But look, there are plenty of opportunities left for Xavier on the schedule. I think it's 10 quad one games remaining, which is, I mean, that's got to be, somebody said it's got to be close to a record, if not a record, just with the way that it sets up. So there are plenty of chances for Xavier, but to your point with a team for Xavier that only has one player that we know for sure, there'll be transfers, there'll be roster attrition after the season, but Quincy is the only player that we know for sure. Stone cold fact right now, as we record this in December, will not be on next year's team. You're talking, you're just trying to get better. You're trying to grow. You're trying to win some of these games that maybe you shouldn't, and you're trying to not lose games that you shouldn't lose or that you should lose. Should yeah, lose. for me, Whatever. the question over the next month plus, next two months maybe of the season is, is this team actually dangerous enough to be a threat at the end of the year? Like, can they get to the point where they maybe get another guy going offensively and you can combine him with Desmond and Quincy to the point where when they make it to the Big East tournament and they are better at the end of the year, you know, the whole line of your freshmen are no longer freshmen and all that stuff. Because I like Sean has figured out the rotation a little bit. We've seen the three perimeter players, Quincy, Dez, and Davion, are playing pretty much the entire game. They'll get a, like a minute and a half, two minutes per game to get a breather in, but they are going to be out there as much as possible the, the rest of the way, it looks like. So, assuming those three stay healthy, it, it'll be interesting to see if this team can make that jump to the point where you feel like, okay, they may not be consistent enough the rest of the way to put themselves in for an at large bid, but can they be a real threat when they get to the Big East tournament? And I think that's possible. I'm going to revise my prediction. I'm going to say that they get to 11 wins in conference play. So a little a little more optimistic, I guess, than than the 10 wins, but they're not winning 14, I don't think. Um, they're not winning 14, but I'll give them 11. Sounds good. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to go with nine and 11, I think. So you 11 and nine. Yeah. I'll go with nine and 11. Yeah. But 10 and 10 is probably the perfect number right in between us then. So uh, that's all I got, Paul. Any news, notes, nuggets? Nothing? That's it. All right. Well, we somehow managed to come up with 54 minutes after a win over Winthrop. So I think we did a pretty good job this week, Rick. Pat yourself (laughs) on the back. Good stuff. (laughs) All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Musketeer Report podcast. We'll be back uh, Christmas next Monday. So I don't know what our recording schedule will be next week, but we'll get you going before before the new year. We'll have something else out for you. And uh, until next time, this is the Musketeer Report podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody.